When I was a kid growing up, we had a book that came every year delivered to our house that was yellow, and it was a list of phone numbers of all the businesses in town. It was called the Yellow Pages, and I know you kids may not know what they were, but really, this is how we would look up the phone number for our local pizza company. Then, for a couple of years, we received not one Yellow Pages every year, but three from three different competing companies. You see, the technology to produce a Yellow Pages had fallen precipitously, and suddenly it was very, very profitable to make a Yellow Pages. Profitable enough that my town of Austin, Texas, which back then was kind of small, had three competing books. Now, here's the thing. The technology that made making Yellow Pages easier and more profitable eventually killed the Yellow Pages off altogether. Why look up a phone number in a one-year-old yellow book when you can look up the current phone number right now on Google? And see reviews and get a map and so much more. The same thing happened to the typewriter. The electronic typewriter was the biggest thing to happen. It even had a built-in spell checker. You could undo mistakes and yet the same electronic technology that made typewriters better and cheaper ended up killing them off altogether. Sometimes the best days for a technology are right before the worst days for that technology. And as an author, you don't want to get caught by surprise making yellow pages in a world that's about to move to Google. And the technology that's about to go through a major change is Facebook. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, in his quarterly earnings report to his investors, made some big Announcements, announcements that are going to completely change how Facebook works for authors. And in addition to that, Apple and Google have made other announcements that are also going to affect how Facebook works for authors. Facebook in 2021 will not be like how Facebook was in 2020. This is not speculation. This is according to what the CEOs have publicly announced to their investors on public corporate earnings calls. These changes will have a massive consequence for authors, and I will tell you what you need to know about those changes and how to navigate them as an author in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. This is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference in the world with writing worth talking about. I'm your host, the Vulcan of book marketing, Thomas Umstadt Jr., and nothing changes faster or more often than social media. And you can either surf the waves or have those waves push you under the water. As I learned the hard way in my one time experiencing real waves in Hawaii, I think I tried to breathe in the entire Pacific Ocean and it did not go well for my nose. So the best way to surf the changes is to see them coming. And a lot of people are surprised by when Facebook makes a platform change, and you don't have to be, especially if you listen to this podcast, especially if you listen to what the heads of these companies are saying they're going to do in the future. To understand what the changes mean, though, and to navigate them well, we're going to have to know where they came from, which means we need, first, a short history of Facebook marketing for authors. I first got on Facebook in 2005, back when it was for only college students. At first, Facebook was just a list of profiles. Uh, think of it as a bunch of about pages on the web. Each user would have one photo, and it wasn't uncommon uh, for students to update or change their photo every day. So I remember walking through 
the computer lab in my university and see them filled with guys scrolling through faces after faces. It literally was a book of faces. And it was a way of finding a girlfriend, or at least that was the thinking back in 2005. Now, it didn't stay that way, and very quickly, Facebook added a timeline feature where you could post updates on what you were doing, you could see what other students were doing, and fear of missing out suddenly got very strong. They also added groups. Now, initially, these groups mapped to existing groups on campus. You know, we had a group of fans for the football team that would band together to play pranks on the quarterback of the other teams we were playing on Facebook. Uh, We had a local chapter of the college Republicans, a local chapter of the college Democrats. And I will say many of the groups are very political from the very start. Now, don't believe it when people say that politics on Facebook is new. (laughs) I was just looking through my old Facebook archive. I archived my first Facebook profile. And about half of the groups I was a part of were political in some way. Now, I should say that politics was different in those days. Some of the most popular political topics were unique to Facebook. There was a huge group protesting the new newsfeed feature. There was another big group mourning Pluto losing its status as a planet. Ah, 2005, 2006. It was a different time. And then, of course, a big group protesting against allowing high school students on Facebook. Because we all knew what letting our younger siblings onto Facebook would lead to. It would lead to our moms getting on Facebook. Perish the thought! So Facebook in those days was mostly a dating app. When you added somebody as a friend, you could add how you were friends with them. Options included things like had a class together or even hooked up with, among other options. Facebook was very different. Facebook advertising in those days was also very limited. Uh, The ads were called campus flyers and were mainly a way of getting the word out about campus activities. If the student council wanted to get out the word about a local event on campus, one way to do it was to spend money on Facebook flyers. I liked it because I went to a small private university and it was the best way around the censors. So my university had to get permission from the school for any campus promotion. Even chalking the sidewalks required permission from the university, but you didn't need permission from the university for a Facebook flyer because they didn't control Facebook. I know it sounds strange now, but in the early days of Facebook, it was a beacon of free speech. Now, eventually, Facebook opened up to the public. Our moms got on, and later, even companies got on, and in those early days, they created fan pages. These fan pages were a great way for authors to talk directly to readers. If an author posted to her fan page, every single fan would get that post in their timeline. Uh, The more fans you had, the bigger your quote platform unquote was. And publishers in those early days would pay close attention to how many fans an author had when trying to decide whether to sign them or not. Now, to promote these new fan pages, Facebook diminished groups until it was almost impossible to find a group. In fact, while I was researching for this episode, I tried to find the original, when I was your age, Pluto was a planet group that once was the biggest group on all of Facebook with millions of members, and I could not find it. I found what looks to be the descendant of that group that has just 26,000 members. So how did this group go from millions to just 26,000 members? Well, either Facebook removed everyone or almost everyone, which I don't think is what happened. What I think they did was they just archived the group or removed everyone and 26,000 people rejoined afterwards. 
And I have some articles from the time talking about this group. So, cause I was like, was that group really as big as I thought it was? And I went on the way back machine and yes, it was uh, Pluto losing its status as a planet really was the big deal of 2006. In 2010, Facebook ended up killing off these, what they called version zero groups altogether. Uh, and I have a link to a Wikipedia page about that in the show notes. And if you were an author and you had built your platform on these version zero groups, you lost your connection to your readers. Your platform was gone. Now, the groups feature was later reborn as a crippled version of itself. And we'll talk more about how groups have evolved on Facebook here in a second. But at the time, many groups were encouraged or forced to transform into pages. And for years, the best way to interact with your readers was with a fan page. In fact, I have still a version of a presentation that I used to deliver at writers' conferences on how to use Facebook as a marketing tool. And I have a whole section on the, in that presentation of why groups were a bad idea. Ha <laughs> ha, how Facebook changes. Now, let's talk a little bit about Facebook pages because that's what they were really pushing in the early 20-teens. Uh, they kept pushing pages and encouraging people to create pages. You know, if you're an author, you have a page. And if you're a business, you have a page. And they eventually dropped the word fan. So they stopped being called fan pages. And they started really leaning into the word like. In fact, Facebook created a like button for everything. You could like pages. You could like photos. You can even like random web pages around the web. And this was a way for Facebook to gather data of your viewing behavior. Because each one of those like buttons would track you (laughs) and give them good, deep data on your preferences and what you did around the web. They now were able to do that without the like button. And we'll talk about more about that in a second as well. So as more and more content was posted, not just from pages, but also from people's profiles, the amount of content on Facebook became more than anyone could consume. If you had 150 friends and you liked 50 pages and each one of those posted just twice a day, that is over 400 pieces of content. That's an inbox of 400 new emails, so to speak. And that is too big (laughs) to be fun. And so Facebook started to filter what users saw and didn't see. They did this with machine learning. They did this with neural networks. They did this with complicated algorithms. And this gave Facebook more control over how Facebook users viewed the world because they could determine what information you had access to and what information you did not have access to. They also got to determine who had the ability to speak to their audience and who didn't. And this set them up for their billion-dollar platform change. You see, for a time, if you had a page, you could reach all of your fans for free. And the go-to strategy at the time was to buy Facebook ads to get more fans so that you could reach more of them for free. And, you know, keep them entertained, keep them engaged, keep them liking your page because they could very easily, you know, click like again and no longer like your page. And the more fans you had, the bigger your platform was. And then Facebook started filtering with their algorithm so that instead of reaching all of your fans, suddenly you only reached 75% of your fans and then 50% and then 25%. You know, it's each month they ticked it down another percentage point or more. And so suddenly you're only reaching 15% of your fans and then you're not reaching any of your fans. <laughs> suddenly it became no longer possible to reach any of your fans without spending money. I, you know, I helped authors build their fan pages. I helped authors spend money on ads in some cases. And authors who spent thousands of dollars on ads to be able to reach their fans for free suddenly found that they couldn't reach their readers anymore without spending between five and $500 per post to reach the fans they had already paid to get 
in the first place. Nowadays, in 2021, most Facebook users can scroll for a long time on Facebook without seeing a single organic post from a Facebook page, at least not one that isn't actually an ad. And you can tell the difference by looking for the word sponsored. And almost every post you see from a page on Facebook nowadays is sponsored. They paid for you to see that post, which was brilliant. It's how Facebook made their billions of dollars. They charged businesses and authors money to get fans, and then they charged them again to talk to those fans. And I've been talking about this on this podcast. I did a couple of videos and a podcast episode in 2018 about this change, about how you can't reach your readers on Facebook without spending money. So I have been chronicling these changes from the beginning. So another feature that Facebook added in the mid-2000s was Facebook Live. And this was a really popular feature for authors for a time. And the reason why it was so popular is because Facebook was really featuring this feature very heavily. In the very early days, if you went live, all of your fans would be notified or all of your friends would be notified if you did it from a profile. And if any of them started watching live, their friends would be notified. And you could very quickly get an audience, 50, 100, or more, sometimes thousands of people from scratch by going live on Facebook. It was an incredibly effective way to reach new people. And if you could be interesting and keep people watching, uh, you really could grow a really large audience. But then Facebook started slowly turning down this feature. And I think they did it initially because they wanted to sell ads so that, you know, you had to pay to get your audience. So every time you wanted to go live, you would pay for ads to get your audience. But then the Christchurch mosque shooting was streamed live on Facebook. And after that, Facebook really turned down this feature. And so that today you almost never see a live video on your timeline. And if you want to go live on Facebook, the best practice is to contact your readers beforehand, preferably on email, get them to put the live on their calendar so they know to go to a certain page to find your live video. Facebook will not lift a finger to promote live video anymore or hardly ever lifts a finger to promote live video, at least by the authors that I've worked with. Now, around this time, Facebook started to realized that pages were getting really political, this content wasn't very interesting, and so they were like, let's bring groups back. So the groups that they had nerfed and still existed, you know, after version zero of the groups, they eventually brought groups back in a really limited capacity. But starting in the mid-20-teens, they started enhancing the groups feature, giving groups more prominence inside the platform, giving group organizers more power over their groups. They even experimented with paid groups for a time. I had a client who was selected by Facebook to be in a beta program to do a paid group. And it was a paid group for authors. Authors would pay $20 a month or $50 a month for access to this paid group. And they experimented with making that work. They ended up canceling that program and they kept the platform free. But uh, it gives you an idea of the sorts of ideas they were playing around with. And groups grow so much in importance that by 2020, the Super Bowl ad that Facebook ran was all about groups. And I'll have that video in the show notes. They were really pushing and encouraging groups. And the go-to strategy for authors in 2020 who are still on Facebook and still trying to make Facebook work was to have a group for your book, a group to interact with your readers. Well, this brings us to today, 2021. And when I log into Facebook now, what I see are sponsored posts from pages. I see occasionally a personal post from a friend, and I see lots and lots of group updates. Now, that is what is happening. So what is going to happen? Well, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO and founder of Facebook, 
laid out his plans, and in short, groups are going to go through radical change. And so, quote, he said, we can make it so that groups on Facebook are not just a feed and a place where you post some content, which is exactly how most authors use groups. So groups are going to get diminished. And the reason they're doing this is to try to fight political activity. They're trying to, you know, keep politics out of Facebook, which I don't know if they're going to be able to do because Facebook at its core is either a politics app or it's a dating app. And I don't think they'll have as many users with it as a dating app. They're trying, but the reality is, regardless of whether you're political, because most authors aren't political, but most political changes hurt authors because they're not the kind of group that looks legit in Facebook's eyes, right? The author who's doing live streams about her romance book, those live streams got diminished after the Christchurch shooting, even though that Christchurch shooting had nothing to do with the author's romance books. But the algorithm discriminates against smaller groups and groups that are not well vetted. And as an author, if you only have, you know, 10,000 people in your group, 25,000 people in your group, or even just a few hundred, you don't look big and legit. And depending on the makeup of those people, if you have lots of a certain political type of people that Facebook doesn't like, the algorithm may diminish your group just because you're attracting the wrong sort to your group, even if they're having totally benign conversations while they're in your group. So uh, what I'm anticipating with these changes is that the kinds of groups that are going to get the most deprioritized are affinity groups, and the groups that are going to get the least amount of uh, deprioritization are groups that are tied to real-world in-person groups. So a group around the readers of a knitting book will be deprioritized more than an Austin, Texas knitting club group. So those real-life groups will remain. Those are the ones that were featured in the commercial, and I think that's what Facebook's going to really play to. But the author who is using the group's feature to reach her readers, that's not going to work as well in the future. In fact, I'm starting to see the very hints of that change in the algorithm already. So what should you do? If you spend a lot of time building Facebook groups, I would encourage you to do the same thing I've been encouraging you to do for the last eight years, and that is to get the email addresses of as many of your group members as possible. Do it as quickly as possible. Remember, Facebook has destroyed the groups feature before. We don't know how far they're going to go now. We know they're going to start making changes, and we don't know how quickly those changes are going to kick in, but they're probably going to you know, start slow and then get faster and faster. And you want to be able to contact your readers regardless of what Facebook does, right? Facebook turns off features all the time. In fact, they often will draw people to a feature and then turn it down or, or charge for it. That's kind of their business model or has been their business model for the last 15 years. And so if you're trying to use Facebook for free, if you're not approaching Facebook as somebody who's spending hundreds of dollars every month, this tool that you've been using of groups isn't going to work as well. You need a reliable way to let your readers know about your future books. And you need a way to tell them of the future location of your community. If your group really is a community where people are interacting with each other, you may need to move somewhere else depending on how much they ratchet down groups. The icebergs of Facebook groups are sinking. And while you don't know if your iceberg is sinking or not, the time to jump off of the iceberg is while it still floats. So uh, one option that some authors are exploring is creating a MeWe group. MeWe is a new social media that's a rapidly growing alternative to Facebook. It's the growth rate on MeWe is just like mind blowing. And I've been stunned at the growth of our novel marketing MeWe group. I created it kind of as an experiment to see what's going on. And it's just growing like gangbusters. 
Now, MeWe works a lot like how Facebook used to work back in 2010. It doesn't filter or sort content. It's all posted chronologically, and you are able to post to all of your fans without spending money. MeWe will charge for stickers, and they charge for a you know, special premium account, but they don't charge you to reach your connections on MeWe. Now, in my experience, a lot of older authors have a bias against MeWe because they don't like the name. They think the name sounds funny. And if this is you, just realize that's a really terrible reason to miss out on getting in on the next big social network. So I'm not saying you need to get on MeWe, and I'm not saying it's the right fit for every author. But I am saying that if your decision is because you think the name is silly, that's a bad reason. (laughs) You need to get to know your readers, see if your readers are on MeWe or if they're starting to switch, because being one of the first authors over in your genre means that you get the readers of the other authors who are not on MeWe will come and find you, potentially. So what am I doing? Well, currently I manage three Facebook groups for authors. One for my course Obscure No More, one for my course The Book Launch Blueprint, and one for novel marketing listeners. And my plan is to move them all over to my own social network. I'm tired of relying on unreliable free platforms. I'm tired of how distracted I get when I get on Facebook. Facebook's neural network knows exactly what kind of videos I watch. And I find that I get those little red numbers, I get distracted, and when I go on to Facebook to do work, you know, related to this podcast, I end up getting distracted watching some Marvel video or some Pawn Stars video or something. <laughs> They're really good at distracting me. And I want a platform that's just for authors that's really focused around the community that we have around the courses and around the podcasts. And and the platform that I'm planning to use is circle.so. Circle.so will soon have a Teachable integration, so it'll all be one login. So you log in for your courses, and that login will also give you access to the community. Now, I don't recommend circle.so for authors, partly because it's expensive. It's going to cost me between $400 and $200 a month to host this community. Now, it'll be free for you if you join but it won't be free for me. And I don't think spending $200 a month for authors is the right call. I think you're better off really focusing on your website and your email list and your blog comments for community until you're making enough money from your writing where $200 a month is you know, a business expense. It's covered in your book sales. So it's not a place to build a community from scratch. And once I launch those new groups, I'll let you know. And I'll probably do an episode about what I've learned, you know, what the process was like. Because uh, some of you, you know, you have a big enough audience where it may be worth it to spend the money to have your own kind of white-labeled community. And Circle.so is invisible to users. You won't know that you're on Circle.so. It'll just seem like the author media community. Unless I tell you, which of course I am because I think it's an educational experience. <laughs> and uh, it's good for you to know what platform that you're on. Now, I also want to talk about Facebook ads. So we talked about Zuckerberg's announcements and what's going to happen in terms of groups. Uh, But there's another big change coming down the pipe. So Facebook ads have come a long way since I bought those campus flyers promoting Senior Skip Day. I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I was pushing a day for all the seniors to skip class and I bought campus flyers to promote it and get around the sensors because there's no way the campus sensors were going to allow uh, senior skip day flyers <laughs> on the posters around campus. Now, over the years, I've managed maybe between $50,000 and $100,000 of Facebook advertising for clients, many of whom were authors, some of them were businesses, some of them were nonprofits, and some of them were political candidates. So I've seen a lot of the different aspects of how Facebook's advertising platform has changed through the decades. And in the early days, how you would target people is based off of which pages that they liked. It was a very page-centric 
tool. And an author who spent a small fortune getting Facebook fans actually helped her competitors because her competitors could then target her fans with ads on Facebook. In fact, those ads would often be formed something like, do you like author X? Well, then you'll love author Y. (laughs) So spending money to get fans really turned out to be a bad strategy, but we didn't know it at the time. Again, it is really hard to build a platform on Facebook because the sands are always shifting. And sometimes the things you do to help you in one year end up helping your competitors the next year. So uh, the tools have changed, though, and become a lot more robust since then. And Facebook now knows more about its users than they know about it themselves because it tracks everything they do around the web. A lot of people don't realize this, but Facebook doesn't just look at what you do on Facebook. It also looks at what you do around the rest of the Internet and even on other apps. So the other apps on your phone share what you're doing with Facebook. Do you have an app that tracks your menstrual periods? Well, if you look in the terms of service, the free apps, the reason why they're free is because they share that data with Facebook that gives you different ads and different contexts depending on where you are in your period. (laughs) I know this for certain. It's really very crazy, the amount of data that Facebook has. And the way they give that data to authors and to advertisers is through this tool called Lookalike Audiences. You give uh, Facebook your audience either to your page or to an email list that you have and say, I want you to find me more people like this. And Facebook uses their big data and their neural networks and their algorithm to find other people who are similar on various very subtle psychological means, demographic means, and otherwise to help you find readers. And the more data Facebook has about someone, the more accurately it can predict their behavior and interests. Often before they even know they want something, Facebook knows that they want it and they're able to give them an ad for that thing. In short, the more data Facebook has, the better ads it's able to serve up, which means more money for Facebook. A lot of people think that Facebook listens to you with your phone and that's disputed. I don't think that they actually need to. I think they have enough metadata on you where they know what you're thinking and what you're talking about without actually having to listen because of how powerful these neural engines are. Now, many indie authors have been able to use this powerful advertising tool on Facebook to make money selling books. And they're able to profitably buy ads to find new readers and uh, do that over and over again. In fact, even some traditional authors have successfully been able to use Facebook ads to grow their email list by promoting their reader magnet. But Facebook advertising is about to go through a major change and not because of anything Facebook is doing. Why? Because Apple is changing how the Facebook app is going to work in iOS. In short, in the next few months, Facebook users on Apple are gonna be presented with a pop-up that says, Would you like Facebook to track you around the internet and on other apps? And you're going to have a choice that says yes or no. (laughs) Now, there is a saying in Silicon Valley that the devil is in the defaults. And by default, Facebook tracks users all over the web and tracks everything they do. Facebook knows what websites you go to and what you do on those websites. And the best place to hide a dead body is behind the advanced settings link on a privacy page because no one ever goes there. So it is possible for you to turn off this tracking inside of Facebook. But chances are you haven't done it because that privacy page is so intimidating. But the new version of iOS will present the pop-up as a simple yes-no option. And you'll have to pick one or the other. You're not defaulted into giving Facebook all your data. And that tiny change will make 
all the difference. While most users are too intimidated by Facebook's complicated privacy pages, because there's page after page, to dig through them to find the feature to turn off the tracking, most of them, when surveyed, and there's been a lot of research done over the last few months because Apple announced this change, I think, in June of 2020. So this is not new news, but I'm noticing not people are not really talking about it in an author world, so I'm going to break it. <laughs> it's not breaking news, but it might be breaking for you, and it's really important to know about because the changes are going to be implemented here very soon. Most users in the surveys that Facebook and Apple are doing are indicating that they're going to click no. And my guess is you listening to this, you're looking forward to this change, and you can't wait to click no when Facebook's forced to ask you for permission. Some of you like the relevant ads, and some of you will click yes. And the, according to the studies I've seen, it's about 15% to 20% of people will click yes when Facebook asks to track them. Now, Facebook, as you can imagine, is not a fan of these changes. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Facebook CEO, had a little hissy fit in his earnings report to investors a couple of weeks ago. And he is really, really unhappy about these changes. In fact, Facebook has been buying full-page ads attacking Apple in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And the way that they're presenting it, because you're like, how on earth can Facebook attack Apple? Who wouldn't want to have the choice, right? Apple's not saying that Facebook can't track you. It's just it's saying that it has to ask permission in a really clear and transparent way. So Facebook's line is, oh, you're hurting small businesses. And if you do these privacy changes, it's going to hurt small businesses. And so far, that campaign has not worked. <laughs> People are not buying it. And Apple is standing strong uh, for user privacy, or at least user choice in user privacy. And what's interesting is that just recently, Google has made some announcements that it may be doing something similar on Android. Uh, it's a little bit less clear what Google's going to do and when they're going to do it. Google has less financial incentive to lock down tracking on Android because they make money selling data uh, to advertisers just like uh, Facebook does, right? They're in the big data game. Unlike Apple, Apple doesn't make money selling uh, user data. It makes money selling iPhones and Macs and devices and uh, subscription services. So you pay for Apple products and you are the customer. Whereas with Facebook and Google, you are the product that's being sold to advertisers. It's a fundamentally different way of seeing users. But Google is seeing these changes and is talking that they're going to do something similar. My guess is they're going to keep it complicated, uh, but they may, you know, they compete directly with Facebook. So maybe they will really ratchet it down on Facebook like they say they're going to. Uh, but we, we're not as sure what Google's going to do. But we do know that Facebook's access to big data is about to get dramatically reduced. And even if Google doesn't do anything, I should say that while the iPhone makes a minority of users, iPhone users on average are wealthier and better educated. And so they make more purchasing decisions. They're more valuable to advertisers, especially authors, right? If you are an author, you're not targeting the kind of person who hasn't bought a book since high school. You're targeting a wealthier, more educated person, the kind of person who pays to read books, which is uh, not the average American. So what do these changes mean for authors? Well, if you advertise on Facebook, this may mean that you have a harder time finding new readers with Facebook ads. Uh, as Facebook gets less personal data about readers, your ads may get less effective and thus more expensive. You have to pay for more ads for irrelevant people to find the people who are relevant who will buy your book. And the metric that uh, savvy authors track is a metric called cost of reader acquisition. How much does it cost to get a new reader? So 
If it costs you $2 to get a new reader and you make $2.50 on every copy of your book, it's profitable to buy readers for $2. And, but if the cost of reader acquisition goes up to $3, now you're losing 50 cents on every reader you acquire and it's not pr profitable to buy Facebook ads. Uh, now, Facebook says, if you go to their blog complaining about these changes, that they're expecting a 60% decrease in revenue for advertisers. This means that they're expecting a lot of advertisers are going to stop buying Facebook ads or that they're going to find that Facebook ads no longer work for them. Now, there's no way to know if this prediction is a good one, uh, but it's clear Facebook itself is terrified, or at least they're presenting themselves as being terrified. That said, Facebook's stock price is trading near all-time highs, so investors do not seem to believe that Facebook's advertising revenue will fall off a cliff. Even after Zuckerberg disclosed to them at the most recent investor call all of these challenges from Apple. So who knows? Perhaps the investors are right and these changes won't be as big as we think. Or perhaps the hedge funds are missing out on a big opportunity shorting Facebook's stock. As Yoda said, impossible to see the future is. Another potential outcome of these changes is that it could hurt other advertisers, but not hurt you. You may have a way of targeting people that doesn't require Facebook's big data. And as a result, if fewer people are buying ads on Facebook, you might be able to get those same ads for cheaper. And you maybe actually see a reduction in your cost of reader acquisition. So what do you do? What do you do if the future is uncertain? Well, here's the deal. The future is always uncertain. <laughs> so the advice is the same. If you advertise on Facebook, track the performance of your ads very carefully. Keep up to date with your ads. Don't check them once a month or once every few months. Check them every week, especially during this time of rapid transition. So as soon as that pop-up happens on the iPhone, and expect a bunch of news about it when it happens. Not a lot of people are talking about that it's going to happen, but once people start seeing the pop-ups, I'm expecting the mainstream media to start covering the story um, more carefully. It's not that they're not covering it now, but it's mostly being covered in the business news and in the technology news. It's not on the front page of the Washington Post or whatever. Now, you might find that once these changes are implemented, you start losing money on your ads and that the privacy changes may, might be the reason. So don't take it personally, be like, oh, my books aren't good anymore. No. There are bigger things happening than you and your books, and you're just getting hit in the crossfire. But you may also find that your ads are getting more profitable, or maybe some of your ads are no longer working, but others are working more. So it's so important to measure. And I have a couple of episodes that I've recorded to specifically help you with that. One is titled How to Track Your Book Promotion, and the other is How to Use Marketing Data to Sell More Books. And I'll have links to both of those episodes at authormedia.com forward slash 273 for episode 273. I have links to those and also all of the newspaper articles and Wikipedia pages I'm referencing. So there's, I did a lot of research for this episode and I have that, including the YouTube video. If you want to watch YouTube video, Facebook's ad promoting groups back, you know, nine whole months ago or 12 whole months ago when groups were what they were pushing rather than what they were diminishing. So bottom line, I've been on Facebook since the beginning, and I have been saying for a long time that it is not a good place to build a platform. Facebook is a foundation of constantly shifting sand, and authors who invest a lot of time and money in Facebook can see all of their efforts turn to nothing overnight. Imagine the author who got into version zero of Facebook groups. She invested countless hours inviting and interacting with her readers only to see them all go away or that connection be severed. Or imagine the author who spent a small fortune promoting her author page so that she could reach her readers for free, 
only to find that now she has to boost her posts for $50 per post to reach those readers. Or imagine the author who grew a following around her Facebook Live video streams only to see her viewers drop off a cliff. Now, she may not have known that she lost her audience, not because she stopped being interesting, which may be what she thinks, but in reality, Facebook changed the algorithm due to an event on the other side of the world that had nothing to do with her, and yet her connection to her readers was destroyed in the crossfire. I've said from the very beginning of this podcast that authors should be building their platforms on digital real estate they own, namely their own website and their own email list. And by beginning, I mean episode two. If you go back to episode two of Novel Marketing, it was titled, Do Authors Need a Website? And back then, this is back in 2013, uh, the common advice in author circles was that authors don't need a website. Their Facebook page and their Google Plus page were all they needed. Facebook and Google Plus were free. They ranked on Google. Why waste money on a website when you can have those services for free? Well, Google Plus is gone and Facebook is about to change again. And we predicted it in that episode. We talked in that episode about MySpace and how it went away and how websites and email had still been effective. And websites and email are still effective and websites and email will be effective eight years from now, (laughs) 10 years from now. Those are the technologies that are not changing because they are your direct connection to your readers. Having a company in between you and your readers gives that company the ability to break that connection. And maybe they do it maliciously. Maybe they go out of business. Maybe they decide to start charging you more for that connection than you're willing to spend. Who knows? (laughs) But the reality is having your own website, and your own email list and using those as your primary ways of interacting with your readers is and will continue to be the most solid marketing strategy for building an enduring platform and not one that can vanish overnight. Don't build your platform on shifting sand. Don't build your platform on Facebook. And if you need help building an author website, Normally, this is where I give my pitch for, hey, we'll build a website for you. In fact, if you go back to listen to episode two, that's exactly what I did because I used to run a website agency building websites for authors. I don't do that anymore. Instead, I have a course on how to build a website yourself, and the course is free. So you can get training from me, somebody who has helped build hundreds of author websites on exactly what readers are looking for, how to thrill them, and specifically, step-by-step, how to go from no website to a powerful and influential website. I've had authors of all ages go through that course, and many of them are super excited to know how to build their own website, because once you build your website, you know how to update your website, and you're no longer at the mercy of the tech people in your life. If you have to ask your son to update your website for you, you will not have an up-to-date website, because there's gonna be something else going on in your son's life that's more important or more urgent, and it's not a good business plan. And so it may be fun or nice to get his help from time to time, but you need to have ownership. You need to have control. So anyway, I highly encourage you to check out the course. It's totally free, Seven Secrets of Amazing Author Websites. You can find it at authormedia.com. Just click on courses. It's the very first course on the list. And I really want to encourage you to own your own website that you built yourself if you can. Uh, There are companies you can hire that will build you good websites, but give it a shot yourself. You may find that it's easier than you think, and it is way easier than it used to be back in the day. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Uh, We are funded by our listeners, and and the way that listeners support this podcast is on patreon.com. 
And our featured patron today is Jennifer Lamont Leo, author of Moondrop Miracle. During the Great Depression, a spoiled socialite must suddenly find a way to support herself and her child. Can she turn a homemade recipe for a skin tonic into a livelihood? And Jennifer Lamont Leo, thank you so much for being a sponsor of this podcast, helping keep this podcast on the air. I could not do this without you. And if you've been listening and you've saved money, or if I've saved you from making an expensive mistake, consider sharing some of that value back with the podcast by becoming a Patreon. And we'll have a link if you want to become a Patreon in the show notes, or you can also find it at patreon.com forward slash novel marketing. And if you can't afford to become a patron, but you still want to support the show, you can just share this episode with one author that you think would find it helpful. Just send them a text message and say, hey, I'm starting to rethink my use of Facebook. What do you think? Can you send them this episode? There's also a blog post version, so they don't have to listen to get an idea, and you can have potentially a very helpful conversation. And uh, a quick personal update. My family and I have moved to Cedar Park, Texas, just outside of Austin, Texas, and I have realized that moving with two toddlers is no joke. Uh, moving is not a childproof activity. We're opening a box. One of my kids was digging in a box. And it was full of medicine. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Trying to get them out of their hands. Uh, but it has been fun to watch uh, toddlers experiencing a move. So for us, a box is something to step over. It's a minor obstacle. But for a one and a half foot tall human, it is an insurmountable obstacle. And for them, every time they wake up or from a nap or in the morning, the house has changed. It's an ever-evolving maze so that they can't have boxes that keep moving around as far as they're concerned. So each time they wake up from a nap, uh, the maze has changed and they have very much enjoyed exploring the house. We're slowly reducing the number of boxes and getting uh, more settled. And I've made some good progress getting my new studio set up. In fact, it's almost finished. And once it's 100% finished, I may post a video on authormedia.com. Maybe I'll share it on social media as well (laughs) if you want to see what the new studio looks like. And right now we're trying to stay warm as we experience the worst winter storm in my lifetime living in Austin, Texas. Right now it's as cold in Austin as it is in Iceland, which is kind of crazy, but also very exciting, especially for small children who love snow. Uh, You've been listening to Thomas Umstadt Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast. A whole team worked hard to bring you this episode. The audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post was crafted by Shauna Letelier. And of course, me, Thomas Umstadt, am your host. If you want to find that blog version of this episode, or if you want to get new episodes delivered to your phone automatically for free, visit authormedia.com. Thank you for listening and live long and prosper.